Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. Surprise! (laughs) I hope you're all well and that you're having a lovely week. I have another bonus episode for you this week with a very inspirational entrepreneur with a story that can't fail to inspire you. I love hearing the stories of how our guests get to where they are today. It's so easy to look at the success and the final product and assume that it was plain sailing, but we just don't live in an Instagram filter and the reality of people's journeys is so interesting. So I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. My guest today is Tom Gosney. Tom is an entrepreneur and designer. He is the founder of Gosney. Gosney, for those who don't know, make incredible outdoor ovens and the business really is taking the world by storm. Tom started out designing a brick pizza oven for his back garden in 2008 and by 2014 was supplying professional ovens to some of the UK's leading restaurants, including Chewton Glen, River Cottage and the pizza chain Frankumanka. His domestic ovens have also collected a loyal following of very famous fans, including Tom Aikens, Paul Hollywood, the founder of Instagram, Mike Krieger, and Richard Branson, who flew Tom out to his personal island, Necker Island, to build one. Tom had, in his own words, a colourful youth, and might not necessarily be the stereotypical entrepreneur. He moved from school to school after being expelled, and was constantly told he would amount to nothing. After battling with alcohol and drug addiction, he used his passion for food to turn his life around and proved all his teachers wrong. Despite not being one for material possessions, by the age of 29, he was able to fulfill one of his dreams and to buy his dream car, a Lamborghini. Not too shabby for the man who, in his own words, a few years earlier, was on a path to nowhere. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much. (laughs) Such a pleasure to have you here. Lovely to be here. So I know that recently you abandoned us in the UK and you've moved your family to Utah, which happens to be one of the sunniest places in the US, which makes me feel like part of you would enjoy being on the desert island. I think I really would. And I think you're going to see that with my like last ever dish that I would eat before I go to a desert island. It's very like <laughs> desert island orientated. Okay. Yeah. And I know, I mean, with the minutes of being there, you're probably going to have built your own outdoor oven, aren't you? So I think <laughs> you're going to be fine. You've got to survive, right? Yeah. <laughs> Talking of which, I think that brings us on quite nicely to something that I have to ask you about. Being flown to Necker Island, Richard Branson's private island, to build him an outdoor oven. Please tell us all about that. That was a a crazy experience. It was wild and it it was one of the most memorable. I remember I was actually sat on Turtle Beach, which was where we built the uh, the oven. And I actually wrote my best man speech for my wedding that was two weeks after. So I'd, I'd taken this really sort of risky gamble that when Richard decided that he wanted to put one of our ovens in, he sort of flew us out. But the, it's notorious in the Caribbean for flights to be delayed and interconnecting flights. And so I had like a day spare to get home to get on an international flight to Bali to go and get married in Indonesia. Oh, it was your wedding? It was my wedding. Your wedding? Oh, my goodness. No, I said best man's speech. Yeah, you it wasn't groom. a best man's speech. That was the wrong thing to say. I wasn't <laughs> the best man. I was I, I was getting married to my wonderful wife. Oh, my goodness, yeah, so, Tom. Yeah, so it was like my speech that I wrote on the island there. And so it was like, it was a, it was a wild experience. So when we launched one of our products in 2016, a product called Rockbox that's done quite well, I reached out to, to Richard's. <laughs> And uh, 
we actually joined a, a virgin pitch to rich competition, which was the first time Richard had ever done this sort of entrepreneurial competition for businesses to apply. And then if they won, they got funding and so on and things, so on and so forth. We didn't actually win, but Rockbox did really well. And it got, it got great sort of widespread coverage. And Richard sort of spoke very highly of the product and so on and so forth. And so he sent me a, he sent me an email after the competition had closed and basically said, thank you for taking, you know, it's been a great addition. And I just sent him an email back saying, if you don't have a Gosney Island or NECA, you're a nobody, Richard. And so he then introduced me to his like culinary team, his ops director. And he was just like, we need to get Gosney ovens all over the island. And so I think there must be something like six or seven of our ovens on his islands now, wow. which is great. We put one more recently. We put one in his new home that he's built on the other side of the island. So it's super fun. And I spent three days there overseeing the build. Oh, it's very important that you were there. Chief, chief build Yeah, officer. no, very important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and is it as magical as everyone says? It was crazy. It was wild. It's like actually really inspired me. So like Richard is obviously a great entrepreneur and he's done amazing things in his life. And sort of going to that island and actually seeing sort of magical environment that he created. It's like very entrepreneurial. Um, Did you go in the famous lift? No, I didn't go in the famous lift. No, I don't know about the famous oh, lift. Oh, okay. So, yes. Maybe there isn't a lift. No, I think there is a lift where you have to do an actual elevator pitch. I didn't have to elevate. In a lift, but no, yeah, you'd, I, I, already, you'd already done that. Yeah, I didn't. I, so we, we, we rocked up, and I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to say who was there, but Brian May from okay. Queen, <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway, because like, <laughs> who cares? Brian May from Queen was there. He was like playing the drums in the bar, I think the first night that we got there, I literally stepped off the island, got greeted. When we got when we got into the island by Natalie Umbrulia, who was staying there, it was just really, it was really surreal, really bizarre, and super fun. It was like a lovely experience to have. And like one of those sort of pinch yourself moments when you've just sort of started a business and like you're on Necker Island, it's wild. It was I crazy. Know, the dream. It was cool. Yeah, it was great. Let's talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's a dish that most reminds you of your childhood. So my dad was the cook in our house. He had a, well, I say had, cause he doesn't cook so much anymore. He's sort of where he's got a little bit older. He's less interested now. And my mum's sort of taken over the reins in, in the house. But dad was the sort of ambitious home cook when we were kids. The meal that most reminds me of um, of my childhood, dad continually made like a leek and potato soup. So like British winters, we would have like oven baked, crunchy baguettes, loads of butter and this amazing creamy leek and potato soup that he always used to make. And I suppose that's the one that's most memorable. He did also break me in with like exceptionally hot curries. He smoked quite heavily when I was a kid, like big up dad. Um, <laughs> and, and so he like burned all of his taste buds. So he used to bundle like, he used to bundle like half a kilogram of chili powder into all the curries. And so it was like little sort of four or five year old kids. We were like eating like fowls and vindaloos. And so I've got like a really good threshold for, for pain, oh, that's with, a very with chili, good which I, I actually really enjoy. And I yeah. thank him for it now. Yeah. I think he did yeah. you a favor. Good effort. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your childhood because you were highly dyslexic and therefore school wasn't the easiest time for you. Did you know at the time that you were dyslexic or did you just think that you were finding it harder than other people? Yeah, so uh, like school was a very frustrating place for me. Uh, you know, like obviously still dyslexic now, but I find it really difficult to concentrate. I find reading books really difficult. My 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 mind travels at a pace that I can't really keep up with. And so like I get distracted really easily. I've got, you know, so all of those things. So I'm like 
got an exceptionally creative mind. I love creativity. I love problem solving. Like learned later in life when I started the business that I really enjoy engineering. But none of that was catered for in a classroom or reading from a textbook. So the sort of frustration the frustration of of not being able to like understand why I couldn't progress like other kids in the room sort of just just led me to sort of act up I suppose my parents knew that I I didn't learn like other children they knew I was bright in my own way but it certainly wasn't from a sort of like intellectual textbook yeah I think for so many people school is a really frustrating time and knowing that it's nothing to do with how clever you are it's just being in that classroom environment just isn't the right place for you yeah and I think a lot of dyslexic people actually go on to be entrepreneurs. Yeah, so R Richard Branson talks a lot about his dyslexia and how he struggled in in his earlier years. And yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not apologetic for it. I think my 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 mind. I'm I'm like really comfortable with who I am. I'm still find it hard to read books. Weirdly, can be obsessively detailed when I want to learn about something though, but it has to really capture me. So I think back then it was really difficult because schools didn't really understand too much what it was. And there's much more awareness to it now. And so like my, my little guy, my little boy who we've got is similar mind to me. He's like very active, very creative. And we've got him into a, a sort of practical learning school, Montessori. And he just loves it. It's like amazing. And if I had something like that, when I was a kid where it was more practical, I think I would have been much more successful in education. Yeah. And you got, expelled from school and thrown out of college and I think I read that you had several teachers tell you that you wouldn't amount to anything which is a terrible thing to say to anyone yeah. isn't it yeah that's definitely true but I like my own admission I was a shit right so I don't really blame them um there was a series of events that took place in school for me when I was a little chap and um led to me being an unruly little handful and so I, I don't really blame like you know the, the sort of ever planting a seed in a child's mind that they won't amount to anything is nothing that I would obviously advocate because you don't know what kids go through and all of that sort of stuff but um where I struggled in school with dyslexia and you know I was a really sensitive little guy and um by my natural personality I'm like quite a sensitive guy and so I, I struggled and then like my behavior just, you know, I, I sort of act, started acting out with negative behavior. Well, it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? If you're, you're acting that way, but then you're also told that you're never going to amount to anything. It's sort of, okay, well, yeah, why, why would this, I bother then? This big, like, sort of, even as a young kid, like a middle finger up approach to like the system, the school, mm. whatever. And I sort of just rebelled against it. And like by my own admission, and that, that was like a conscious decision because I was just like highly frustrated in an environment that wasn't supportive. And, you know, like, I'm not going to pretend that it was all their fault because it wasn't. I was like a bit of a wild kid and I don't even <laughs> really know why. Like those are some of the early makings, but my behavior just got worse and worse. And I was just hard and difficult to control and handle. In the back of your mind, I feel like I've had this conversation before. And as a teenager, you either have cheerleaders or you have the people telling you that you're useless and you won't amount yeah. to anything. And it's not right. But sometimes that latter group are actually more inspiring and because you, you're sort of motivated to prove them wrong so did you did you find that yeah and it, it was like a common theme in my life right and like as i grew older behaviors escalated and it, it, you know it certainly wasn't teachers at that point but it was just people in the community and people that knew me um <laughs> like the whole community and so i you know i i i, I certainly wasn't like 
a sort of picture postcard perfect role model as a kid either but um it was definitely super super motivating um certainly in my later life yeah to actually say i'm going to make a decision to change stuff and i'm going to go after doing something something meaningful yeah and as a result of all of that i, I know you spent your teens and in your words partying too hard and drinking too much i'm sure at that point you weren't thinking about a career but if you had to have thought about what you were going to do later in life what were you thinking really really interesting like I really didn't know I you know because I went through school and I'd really never found what I was good at I think I had I think be completely truthful which is quite sad I had you know really low self-esteem because no one had ever discovered what I was good at and you know so I sort of left school just being told that I couldn't do anything well and so there was this sort of large rebellious stage where I actually, if I'm completely honest, I didn't care for the future. I was just like, I just didn't care for it. And, um, and that was a, that was a theme that stayed in my life for like all of my teenage years and, and changed towards the end. But you know, there, there was certainly no real prospect. I was like quite happy being a retrobate. Let's move very smoothly on to the second desert island dish. Tom, what was the first dish that you learned to cook? Again, a lot of inspiration from my dad in cooking, but my dad used to make us pancakes when we were kids. So we, we used to make crepes and that was something that just completely engulfed every single weekend morning of my childhood. So my best friend and I, Rob, we would sort of like hang out every weekend together and we would make an obscenely oversized batch of pancake mixture and we would just pretty much eat pancakes and like have competitions and flipping them and all of that stuff. So we had pretty much as soon as I could you know, as soon as I could reach the hob, we were we were flipping pancakes and having fun doing that. So that was probably the most memorable dish that I knew instinctively knew how to make without getting out the weighing scales and all of that stuff. So that's what I learned. Normal teenager drinking and partying began to spiral out of control. And by the age of 21, you decided to check into rehab for a year in South Africa. Tell us a little bit about that time. Yeah, so it was essentially segued out of my education, right? That, that The earlier stuff that I said about struggling to find my identity and like really not feeling like I fit because I, I'd never truly grasped what I was good at. I sort of had this rebellious streak, you know, I sort of felt like the education system gave up on me. And so I would give up on giving back to the world. And so I sort of, at the age of like 13 or 14, I found drugs and it was, if, if I'm completely honest and I, you know, I'll be completely truthful. It was like, I'd found my calling as a long, young kid. It was like, it was a sense of relief that I'd got in feeling like, you know, fee, you know, th th those, those unfortunate feelings of like low self-esteem and not feeling like I'd found my place or found my home or found a community that I fit into. And I found drugs and they sort of like took some of that like negative pain away to an extent. And it just spiraled. It was, it was from a hereditary perspective, I've got an, an addictive gene, you know, we, it's in, it's in our family. And it was wild, you know, we lived in, we lived in a rural area on the South coast of England, but it was, you know, drugs were more accessible than alcohol when we were, when we were young. And by the age of sort of 14, 15, we were taking like the hardest drugs that you could take, you know, as a group, this is a sort of small group of five of us. There was one guy in particular, I won't say his name, but him and I were like tarred with the same brush of addiction. You know, we had, we had this sort of same, it's almost like this 
competitive drug taking, which was which was wild. You'd found something that you could do really well, and I really enjoyed it. You know, and I, I like I'm not going to pretend that I didn't. It was like it was exceptionally destructive. I think I'd really struggled to find my place in the world, and so it was like I think truthfully I was it was probably like a big crying out for help because I'd like never really had the support, never really been like my parents were like incredibly supportive, came from a brilliant background, like they loved me, they nurtured me, they gave me everything that I needed, but like there was. There was, there was, there was, there was a gap, right, from, from school and some of the earlier things that had happened to me. And so we sort of found this journey where we started taking drugs and just escalated and we were wild. And then how, I mean, it takes such a strong personality to then turn your life around and go to rehab. So how did that come about and how did you find that year? Yeah. So it was like, firstly, it was the most amazing thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, like sort of single handedly was the hardest decision, the bravest decision that I'd ever made and just had the most monumental impact to everything that's in my life today. Like, um, I suppose I got to the end, you know, like I, amongst and within the sort of external facade of being Tom Gosney in my teenage years and being this like reckless, wild kid, I always knew, like even from the beginning stages, I always knew that there was much more potential for me. And I think instinctively, I knew that it wouldn't go on forever, which is probably why we pushed it to the limits. You know, I, I honestly felt like I've always been an all or nothing guy. And I felt like I felt it would come to an end and it needed to come to an end at some point. So even at the age of like 15, 16, before kids really in college were even drinking, you know, we were doing what we were doing. And I knew I knew that there was like a limited window of us doing it. And so I got to the age of 20. Oh, it was in my 20s. I think probably turning to the age of 20 and actually for the first time in my life trying to stop and not being able to was a big was a big moment for me. I guess because you, you always ultimately feel like you're in control. And then yeah. when you realise and in, in, in your mind, I could stop at any moment. I just don't want to. And then realising that maybe that isn't true. Yeah. I think destructively, I like sort of fought in my teenage years for a lack of control to so just to be wild, which was really crazy and, and quite weird. But, but then, yeah, that, that realization of like trying to stop. I mean, it was, it was really desperate. If I'm honest, it was, it was, it was really upsetting. But for me, for my parents, you know, every, for my friends, everyone around me, you know, I would sort of wake up in the morning desperately trying not to, to do what I was doing and, you know, drinking first thing in the morning every day just to get through the days, you know, and then, and then, you know, sort of that naturally leading on to all the other things that we were doing, you know, all the other drugs that were coming. And so it was, it was that sort of complete feeling of despair that was just, it was a real eye opener. And then there was a, there was a, a relatively monumental turning point for me where, I was out one evening in Bournemouth and, and, you know, got, got jumped by a group of guys, you know, and, and that was, that was like a very traumatic experience. They'd essentially, they beat me up, like eight guys beat me up. They cracked my skull. They cracked my eye. They knocked all my teeth and all my bottom teeth out of my mouth. It was, it was, it was like a, a brutal kicking. And that was the turning point for me. I was just like, I, I woke up in a hospital the next morning and, you know, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. Like my, t they, in the hospital, they sort of put the teeth back in my mouth, which is really weird. I managed to pick them up off the pavement through oh my, my teeth. Oh my goodness, Tom. Sorry, this is so traumatic and brutal. I'm to talk about it. it's like so, so, but like I, that, that for me was like, 
it was just it marked the end. It like it was really like my rock bottom. And I, you know, I I spiraled three months after that incident. I spiraled out of control with drinking to the point where I was I was on the verge of death. I think I was like in and out of hospital, drinking liters of vodka a day. Just couldn't cope with the trauma. I'd had like severe panic attacks going outside. I'd have panic attacks without having alcohol. And so that was just a turning point. I like one day that sort of realized and I, I called my mum up and bless my mum. She's been like my biggest supporter for my entire life. Even at my darkest moment, she's always been there for me. And, um, and I just said, I'm ready, you know, I'm, I'm ready. And, and literally, um, oh, I feel a bit emotional. Yeah. I just, my mum just it's always been so selfless. I'm just so appreciative, but like within like 14 days of that, I was like on a plane I sort of said to my mum, like, I can't do rehab in the UK. You know, I was so unbelievably addicted to drink and drugs that there was like no way that I would make it through the first month I would leave. And so I sort of said to my mum, the framing was like, I need to, I need to go to a different country. I need my passport taken away from me. I need to go somewhere until I can be better. And my mum, bless her, she made it all happen for me within, within sort of two weeks of saying it, I was on a plane to South Africa. I'd like found a, a rehabilitation center with my mum that just seemed like it just felt right for me. It was an amazing place called South Coast Recovery Center in Durban, in South Africa. And they got a very different approach to rehabilitation in South Africa. Like you, you don't, you don't chat back to a big South African dude, right? Yeah. And like there was this incredibly inspirational leader of the rehabilitation center called Conrad, who was a very scary man when you go <laughs> into there. He was like ex gang member, he had a huge scar on his chest where he'd been shot in the chest with a shotgun and survived. He was like, he was like a crazy, crazy dude. And, and it was different. You stepped out of line there. It was almost like a little bit of an army camp, but with like a really, really like empathetic approach to recovery and drug addiction and understanding the, like the cause of it. And so, yeah, we went out there. My mum, bless her. She escorted me out there, which was horrific for her. We still talk about it to this day. I got absolutely hammered on the way out there trying and they said to me in recovery in when I got to the treatment center that it was like me desperately trying to like corrupt going there like the addict in me trying to get arrested so just drinking excessively running away from my mom you know it was like it was a wild 24 hours for my mom to escort me there and then I got there and it just changed my life it was the most life-changing I was so ready for it and so scared I guess like that kind of thing it doesn't work if you're not ready so you can as a parent, you can drag someone to a place like that, but if you're not internally ready for it, which it sounds like you were, it's not going to work. Yeah, I did. Sorry to talk over you, no. but I definitely was ready. I like had no idea how deep rooted my addiction was at that stage, though. I just like and worked with some amazing people. I worked very closely with a with a man that is so dear to my heart today, called Oliver, who was a pastor, who was like my primary counselor there, who just completely changed my life. He he unveiled a series of events for me throughout the year that I was in rehabilitation that just completely enabled me to surrender and like to truly understand, like truly understand myself. He helped sort of rebuild me. And yeah, it was just incredible. It was the most amazing experience and it just changed my life forever. Uh, I spent just shy of a year in treatment. Did that year also give you time to reflect on on the future and what you wanted your life to be? Because I know you've said you, you knew that you were capable of more than you'd yeah. become. 
I guess not many people get the luxury of sort of a bit of a time out and reassessing what's happening and, and then to make a conscious decision of what you want. Yeah, so I'm like exceptionally fortunate with parents that are so supportive. Both my mum and my dad have never given up on me and they've always supported me. And so hugely appreciative for that. But yeah, so, uh, you know, have it, having that time out, it sort of made me laugh when you introed and talked about the sort of embarrassing point of me owning a Lamborghini, which <laughs> I thought was the best thing in the world when I was 29. And actually, like, that's not even that long ago. So I still feel a little bit embarrassed by it now. But when I when I sort of went to treat, treatment and I had that moment of like, I'm going to rebuild my life. And I, I set myself a goal of doing that. You know, it was like, it was the car that I'd always wanted as a kid. It was the posters that were up in my bedroom. And I was sort of like, that was like my first big goal. To, and I didn't know, I had no idea what I wanted to be or what I was capable of being. But it was like, that was, that was, that, that was the focus, right? That, well, that was one of the focuses. Yeah, I like that quote because from everything I've read, it's so apparent that you aren't a materialistic person and you're not focused on those kind of goals. But I think when you're starting out, as you say, you have to set goals and you have to reach for something. And that's such a, it's such a milestone, isn't it? Yeah, I think like back then there was an element of materialism, like a materialistic approach, probably because of low self-esteem, being told that I wouldn't achieve. So this is like desperate desperate desire for me to get out into the world and go and smash it and just be successful and that was like my i suppose that was a goal that i set but probably the goal that i the reason i set that goal when i was young was to have that like external recognition that i wasn't the guy that couldn't achieve anything Definitely. and yeah if those teachers saw you driving around and that lamp you know what well, yeah <laughs> sorry to interrupt you but yeah there, there was definitely there was there was one one funny moment where I pulled up next to a teacher in a petrol station, and yeah, it was it was one of those funny moments where they looked pretty shocked, and it was you know it was just it was just quite interesting. That makes the whole thing totally worthwhile. Yeah, it's like <laughs> sell it now. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. That is the best dish you've ever eaten. One dish that always springs to both my wife and my, like my mind when when we reminisce over our food adventures because we've loved to travel we still love to travel and um we were in the seychelles in a nice hotel it was the i think it was the first first holiday we'd ever had after we started the business maybe we were five years into running the company and we treated ourselves to a 10 day breakaway we were in the seychelles and i had this amazing japanese togarashi bowl it was called but it was it was the most insane thing so it was like sushi rice layered on the bottom like warm sushi rice then covered with togarashi mayonnaise which is like this spicy you know what togarashi is it's like a red pepper and like i think roasted sesame seeds and it's like this very very spicy punchy like garnish they mix with mayonnaise they layered that in and then there was like soy marinated fatty tuna and then they had little shards of tempura that they broke up that they put within the rice for that crunch and then they layered like these amazing madagascan madagascan king prawns on the top of it all chopped up like loads of edamame spring onions it was just the most magical thing that we'd ever eaten it was like still to this day we reminisce and i've tried to i actually loved it so much that i forced the chef to give me the recipe when we were there and i've never been able to recreate yeah. it like they did like, <laughs> i know yeah. i've done that so many times when you get back to your like cold depressing kitchen you're like yeah it doesn't it was so same. rubbish <laughs> maybe it was the setting as well but definitely the most memorable for the both of us oh my god that sounds so good so I can imagine that when you got back from South Africa and back to normal life, your old surroundings and friendship groups, it must have been such an adjustment to know how to socialize without your old crutches. And I think that's when you really found your passion for food. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. 
you know, like coming out of South Africa, you know, there was a year spent in rehab was like a, a huge safety blanket, right? You know, being in that environment. And actually to the point where essentially institutionalized, my new way of living, of not drinking, was in the confines of quite literally 15-foot walls that I wasn't allowed out of. You know? It was a bit like a prison camp, but a nice one, an empathetic one. Very expensive one. Yeah, it actually wasn't. You know, you look at... Um, you look at the likes of some of the rehabilitation centres in the UK. And my mum, my mum dragged me into the Priory when I was 15 to try and get me committed there. And, you know, a year in treatment in South Africa cost less than half a month in England. Whoa. You know, so it was like very, very, very different and just a much different approach. But yeah, coming, coming back, like just a like heightened sense of vulnerability, not really understanding how to socialise. You know, I think one of the key things like where I was where I was taking drugs and drinking from such a young age, didn't really mature or find an identity that I knew was me. So I think coming out was, <laughs> coming out of rehab. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a wife. Um, coming out of rehab was like, rehab was the easy bit. Mm. It was super hard, but it was the easy bit. Getting into normal living and being around old routines, old places, old haunts, that was that was really challenging. And um, the way I dealt with that was like, I threw myself into food and I was sort of, sort of like forced to grow up by a decade at the age of 21 and start throwing dinner parties, you know? <laughs> and like that, that was, you know, I'm a super sociable guy, really. I had this approach where I left, I was like sort of fiercely defensive for my life to not change. And for the first few months of being out and into recovery, I was going out to nightclubs with my friends and being the guy drinking a Diet Coke and actually just really quickly realised that they're really not that enjoyable unless you're hammered. <laughs> you know, like you've got people hanging off you all night, repeating themselves. The, the, yeah, the, it's awful. The constant vibe was like, so proud of you, bruv. You're so strong, bruv. Like 20 times a minute was like, oh my goodness, I'm a little bit bored of hearing that and this environment just isn't for me. And so rather than sort of wavering and risking my recovery, just decided to, to, to like pivot and like I was comfortable not to be the guy that wanted to go clubbing, even though, you know, it was the normal thing to do back then. I was like really comfortable not to, you know, to, to openly admit that it wasn't what I enjoyed. And so this is when you threw the famous pizza party that kind of started that everything. Was it. Yeah, I still remember it to this night. I still remember making the dough. It was a Jamie Oliver dough recipe. I made it in the kitchen in our conventional oven. I, my friend Owen, Oge Lee, and my girlfriend at the time, Laura, who's now my wife, were there. Cooked four pizzas for us in the in the conventional oven and. Whilst it was really fun and exciting doing it, the pizzas were shit. They were like soggy. They were like really underwhelming. And I was like really disappointed. And it was literally that evening that I decided that I would get a pizza oven for the garden. And I was laboring at the time. We were earning no money. Like Laura and I were, we were, we were fully broke. And we like, when I said to Laura, I'm getting a pizza oven for the garden. She just looked at me <laughs> like she wanted to punch me in the face. Um, after maybe a couple of hours research online, there were no pizza ovens that were remotely affordable. They were sort of thousands of pounds. 
and so I, I made the decision that evening, the night that we had pizzas, that I was going to build my own. And like quite literally, no, no exaggeration, the next morning I started digging foundations in the garden. Oh my goodness. Laura's like, you should be at work. Well, so did you know, because that, at that point I found really interesting, like did you, did you know that that was something that you were able to do? Because I, I could have the idea and think, oh, I'd love to build a pizza oven, but where would, where would I even start? Did you know that you were sort of quite a talented engineer slash designer? Like, n- <laughs> no, like I, like I didn't. And to frame it, I'm highly creative, love construction, always love building. I like some of the work I was doing was was working in construction and doing general building work when I was like looking for cash and hand work when I was younger, came out of rehab, really didn't have an idea of the direction that I wanted to go. So I was sort of on a quest searching for it. So like, to me, it was no thing. I would just build it. I would like research it and I would build it and I would figure it out and do it. So I was like very hands-on, really practical, really happy to get stuck in. Yeah, so within a week of the night after the pizza session, I had the most the ugliest monstrosity of a pizza oven built into the garden. I certainly didn't have my design skills honed when I built the first brick oven in the garden. Um, I think we need to see a photo of this first. I'd have to dig one out. Yeah, but it was it was not overly pretty. It wasn't overly pretty. But what what actually happened with it was was sort of transformational to my life. You know, the the sort of the the process of like lighting a fire inside essentially like a brick igloo and then cooking and poking food next to it not even just pizza but like cooking lumps of meat next to a fire like super primal i just found myself like in the garden pretty much every night building fires poking food even in the winter or a sort of budget Tesco's gazebo that went over the oven that was covered in soot on the underside. That sounds safe. Yeah, it was really unsafe <laughs> and really smoky. And But the, the sort of commitment and the, the passion that I found through cooking with fire was like the first part of my journey of, of, of going into the ovens. I found this really lovely quote, which said, pizza was his way of re-engaging with friends and family. No one would show up with drugs. Instead, they came with pizza toppings and would unite in the common healing power of good food and great company, which is That's so, so nice. Who wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> maybe you did. <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah, no, it's maybe really not. lovely. Yeah. And that's definitely my truth. And so there's such a poignancy to me with the business and like what the business, what, what you know, what the products, my first product did to my life, you know, my, like I was inviting my friends around for dinner parties and like, you know, ble- bless my friends. You know, I was like fiercely adamant that I was comfortable with them bringing beers and doing their things. And actually truly inside I wasn't, I found it like cripplingly difficult to be in an environment with alcohol at that such early stage. And we built the oven and it was just, it was, it was by almost by way of magic. You know, we would, we had a few pizza parties where my friends would come around and I made dough and I got the toppings all produced and all of that stuff. And then we would eat pizzas together. And after like two or three weeks, they stopped bringing beers and they started bringing toppings. And that was like, that was such a magical turning point for my life. It was, it was almost like I'd found that relief. And I thought, I think I'd emotionally like bonded with the oven because it sort of saved me. Yeah. It was like, it was so, it's such a fascinating process to go through. And so I, I honestly think the medium of cooking it was so much more than eating. It was like that sense of community and that longing for that like connection with being around my friends, but in an environment that was actually truly like safe and, and like I felt comfortable in and like the oven did that, like the oven gave me that. And it was like every single one of my friends was just so infatuated with what I'd built. And they, you know, we would fight for taking our turns to make pizzas. And so it was this exceptionally organic process of like solidifying the foundations of my recovery so it was just it was amazing 
and it was you know it's such a a, a sort of meaningful foundation to the essence of the brand that we're building today mm. you know it's amazing let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish and that is your favorite sandwich so this was hard like i thought about this a lot <laughs> that is what i want to hear tom <laughs> and the, you know the, there is one that you know not not to just completely lean into wood-fired ovens and and all of that stuff but there's this magical thing i actually discovered it before knowing that it was actually a real thing that italians do but it was so using like a leftover pizza dough ball you sort of flatten it out like a like a pita bread like you, you squash it down just like you're opening pizza base, but then you throw it in a really hot oven and it like puffs up like a giant pita bread. And so I do this amazing thing. They're called panuzos and you can get like, there are panuzo stores that are opening now, literally just a dough ball that's puffed up like a pita bread. When we do pizza sessions, I fill these sandwiches. So I'll generally put a, uh, like a layer on the bottom of the pizza once it's open. So it puffs up, you cut it open. You have to be really careful not to get steam burns because it's like full of steam, really hot. Let it cool down for a minute, chop it open. I put like a layer of meat on the bottom, whether it's salami or pancetta or anything that we're using in the sessions, then some tomato sauce, then I fill it with mozzarella and like any other toppings. It really isn't, um, my favorite personally, my favorite is like mozzarella, sun-dried tomatoes. Like I like to rub like fresh garlic onto the bread inside. So it's got like that essence of like raw garlic on it. And then I basically do this thing where we shut the sandwich up, fill it with cheese and basil and then I like coat it with oil, cover it with Parmesan cheese and re-roast it back into the oven. And it creates this like Parmesan crisp, crunchy sandwich. It's insane. And no no joke, like whenever I'm trying to woo a customer <laughs> or a friend of the brand or like cooking with, with any of our partners or ambassadors, literally I almost skip the pizza, go straight to the panuzo and then chop these sandwiches up into like bite-sized chunks. And people like, there's this crunchy gooey, they're just insane. They're insane. You can do them in the conventional oven, better in a wood-fired oven. You can't actually make the bread puff in a normal oven. You need it super hot, like 500 degrees. They're incredible. If you haven't had a panuzo, eat a panuzo. I've never had And cover it with parmesan. What have I been doing with my life? That sounds absolutely incredible. Also, something that I I came across when I was researching was you used the term leoparding about a pizza, which I hadn't heard before, and I love that. People geek out, right? And so when I then started the brand, I, like, became obsessed with dough, like pizza dough. It's like, you know, you know, there's this sort of, there's a big movement in America where people go mad for like making the perfect brisket. You know, it's like a science and there's communities built around like producing that perfect bite of brisket. And so it's similar. It was like a similar journey that I went on with dough and like leoparding is about like lower, slower fermentation of the dough that like matures the dough, makes the yeast activate slower. So you get these thousands of little carbon dioxide bubbles in the, in the actual dough itself. And then they, they basically form a really thin layer when you put it into the oven and they pop and just burn and blister. And so people truly geek out in the pizza world about getting the perfect leoparding, the perfect rise, the perfect leoparding. I'm a little bit obsessed with that as well. I've like eaten a lot of pizzas to get the perfect. Leopardy. I hadn't heard the phrase before, but it's such a good one, isn't it? You know exactly what someone's talking about when they say that. Yeah, and there's a leopard emoji, so it's like really yeah. fun. <laughs> really fun when you text. Well, it. then yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes it's it so a no-brainer. <laughs> So you got the business off the ground with a £5,000 loan from your parents. At this point, I think you were around 25. How did you know where to start? How did you go from building that first initial oven to then actually turning it into a business? Yeah, so it's been quite the journey. 
you know, after building the first oven in my garden, I then had friends asking if I could build hand-built brick ovens for them, even though it was like a monstrosity to look at. I, ho- I honed the design by that point and did loads of sketches around how I would build my own hand-built brick ovens. And so I actually started advertising my services, doing it without any limited businesses. I was, I was really just like, these things are so cool. I can build them for friends, family, and anyone that wants them. So after being commissioned to build maybe a couple of them, one for my brother-in-law that was, that was, that was built for cost. And then one for another friend, I sort of realized quite quickly that there was no scalability. It was, I, I think there was a moment that Jeff, my brother-in-law and I had when we were tiling his oven in his garden, where I was like, there has to be a way of making these more accessible to people. And that was really like the moment that Jeff and I were tiling the oven in the garden together was the sort of light bulb moment that I have to go on a journey to make wood-fired cooking more accessible. It's such a magical process. I'd fallen in love with it and it had changed my life and built the foundations of my recovery. But it wasn't that moment where I did that light bulb, which was what this moment was. And so big up to Jeff for being part of that moment. Um, (laughs) Well done, Jeff. Yeah, thank you, Jeffy. And that was it really. Like I saw an opportunity to develop something that we could ship out on a pallet that someone could install themselves that was almost like kit form that was really easy to use that didn't require a ton of building work and so i basically went on a journey researching every single wood-fired oven that existed in the world you know from suppliers in china america australia portugal do a lot of ovens spain italy obviously and i i sort of obsessively learn about the, the material composition of precast ovens and And that was it. Self-taught for maybe three or four months, just like stacking up all of my knowledge, just Googling and researching. And then I I went on a journey to design the first ever affordable oven in the Stone Bay Coven Company, which was was sort of my expression of the perfect wood-fired oven at that time. And yeah, £5,000 loan from my mum. It bought me a a fiberglass mould that was £2,500 researched how to construct and design fiberglass molds. So I designed my oven on, you know, hand sketching it, but doing technical drawings. I had no CAD skills, nothing like that. So literally it was, it was like sort of fag packet sketches in the early stages and finding really brilliant suppliers found an amazing guy called Michael at 3d pattern mold makers in the Midlands who sort of understood what I was trying to achieve. They were really used to working with people with technical drawings and stuff like that. And so I went there with, you know, a four piece of paper crumpled up in my pocket and said, I want to build this. And he, you know, he helped me on that journey. Um, so we got a sort of mold made, he discounted it because he loved my enthusiasm. You know, the molds, molds were much more expensive. Um, but he, he did me a deal for two and a half grand, desperately had to use the other two and a half grand to build a website. And then I found a supplier in the North of England that was happy to fill my mold for me and ship what was basically a a small sort of concrete igloo. I'd given them my material recipe that I wanted them to make. So they made my material recipe, sort of like a one piece igloo dome with a two part base. And then I designed a metal stand for it so people didn't have to build a base in their garden. And that was really when the Stone Bay Coven Company was born. We decided on the brand name, um, the Stone Bay Coven Company and a close friend of mine built me a website and that was the beginning of our journey. Yeah. I know you've said that where the company is today is sort of beyond your wildest dreams. Yeah. At that point, it sounds like you were just, you know, carving your own path and finding your own way. So possibly you weren't thinking about too far ahead in the future. What, but what did you hope for the company? 
you know, it was so funny. I remember when I had a light bulb moment that we could build a bigger size of an oven and it was like the most amazing realization ever. It's like, we could have two sizes. Laura's like, oh my goodness, that's insane. <laughs> and like, it was this big high five moment between Laura and I. But, you know, my, my ambitions really were, I think a lot of my drive was to like surround myself with stuff that like truly gave me purpose, kept me protected in my recovery. I wanted to get up in the morning with focus exceptionally determined, hardworking dude that I didn't really want to work for anyone else. Just a decision that I made. I've always <laughs> I got better now as I've matured, but I've always had an issue with authority. So this is probably why I was a naughty little shit for like my entire <laughs> teenagers. Just didn't like to be told what to do. And so whilst I've matured now, I really like paving my own direction. So in the early stages of Stonebake, I remember saying like my li sort of lifelong goal was if I could make £8,000 a month from the business to be able to afford a nice home, to be able to not have to worry about shopping in supermarkets, being able to cook for my friends. That was the dream for me. I've always given myself goals, but I never really realised before that, like how ambitious I was or how much I had a passion for sort of entrepreneurialism, design, engineering. And that came later. And the the journey of you know, the expectations of where we were to where we are now has just been incredible. You yeah, know? So I think your ovens are in over 50 countries, which is... Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, they definitely are. I don't, I don't know how many countries, probably more. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and well, that's just an amazing, an amazing achievement for me as an individual and, and for, for what we've done within Gosney, you know. I think your story is... It's amazing because I feel like you've turned all the negatives of an addictive personality into positives. Like you've harnessed that and used that as amazing drive and determination to build this incredible company. I've been obsessed with it. I really have. And I'm not going to pretend that I haven't. I've, I, but you, know, have, you have to be. Some, some people in recovery would say that it's unhealthy and it's cross-addicting. For me, I've got an exceptionally addictive personality. If I'm cross-addicting to something that adds benefit to other people's lives, doesn't harm anyone, keeps me motivated. I don't think time. you can change who you are. You can only no. change direction. Yeah, I think like evolving and learning and progressing and improving and striving to achieve things from a personal development perspective is just what I've done on the journey. Yeah. You know. Let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. <laughs> Pizza. <laughs> All day long. You know what I said earlier about like leopard spotted dough? I like, do you know what? Through, throughout lockdown... I would literally make dough daily and I would just to cook the dough to see how the crusts rise, how it cooked. And like, just got this like really, really unhealthy obsession, which is why I've got a bit of a tummy on me with like carb loading. Um, so like to say it would be anything else other than pizza would be a lie. So how often do you, are you having it? like twice a day or every day without fail, but often more than no. once a day. Do you know what? I, I actually make pizza much more regularly than I eat pizza. Okay. So I am so obsessed with like nurturing my dough. I'm, I'm now on like a 96 hour fermented dough okay. that spends five hours at room temp, two days in the fridge, then two days boiled in the fridge, then five hours out. And it's how I've found my way of producing the perfect leoparding, the perfect crust, but there's always room for improvement. So I just make pizza a lot. I make pizza a lot, but I don't, I try not to eat it as much as I make it. Right. But may, maybe, I definitely make pizza like two or three times a week. Try and eat it once a week. <laughs> and what's your go-to, like what is the pizza that you're eating the most often? 
you know what? It's just super simple. Always like I don't, you know, like less is more. I really just like like an incredible tomato base. So that I've never been able to to even find a tomato that tastes as good as the tomatoes we ate when we were in Naples. My mate took me to Naples for my stag do. We went on a food tour. Obviously, I don't have conventional stag do because I'm not out screaming with the boys necking <laughs> booze anymore but um so we we went and and sort of gorged on everything naples had to offer but better. like yeah the the tomatoes they were insane but i literally go for like a basic tomato base chopped garlic maybe some anchovies some oregano like a marinara but with the odd addition of some anchovies it's like it's like perfect simplicity for me yeah why did we do this before lunch <laughs> Um, so we've obviously talked a lot about pizzas, but I think the great thing about the ovens is you can cook anything in them. Like last weekend, we cooked brownies in ours, which were amazing. And I think one of the things that you've said, it's 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 the romance of the outdoor cooking, isn't it? There's so much more than just eating food, right? It's like super sensory. I think getting outside, smelling, wood burning, it sort of takes your stresses away. You can really detach, like when you go indoors and your phone's buzzing and your emails are going, I think there was this notion that was like really magical for me, which is why it was really exciting to build it into a business is like what I noticed with my friends is people put their, their phones down and like, you know, we've had customers tell us consistently, like they've reconnected with their kids when their kids don't want to know their parents anymore. They've got their teenage years. They want to go out with their mates and actually kids flock home for, for pizza night, you know, to hang out with their folks. And that sort of like, participation and engagement is is really true from a sensory perspective you sort of light the oven it's quite emotional it feels like a spiritual process you know you light a fire you watch a fire burn my mum always framed something so magical for me which really which really captured me it was like you never feel like you're alone if you're sat with a fire you know you can sit in the lounge and you can watch a fire burning in a fireplace for hours on end there's something like really spiritual about it you can get lost in it mm. and i think that's what the ovens do but they also just kick out great food so yeah. it's, like, it's <laughs> like also a bonus win-win yeah <laughs> um i found a quote where you said um the ovens draw children away from their tablets and their smartphones and it makes them engage with their family which is a really big plus for you it makes people sociable the way that we were sociable 20 years ago before Facebook and Twitter and the platforms that make people completely inept in social situations. <laughs> Tom, do you think that's true? Do you think we are all completely socially inept now? Oh, I don't know. I don't think social media helps us. Like, I just really think I'm really grateful for is growing up in a world without Facebook when I was a kid, climbing trees, building dens, sitting on social media. I just, I just think it's quite damaging. And I think... You know, I think the pressure that it puts on people to, you know, this sort of the life that you have and the life that you portray are two very different things. And, you know, growing up as a teenager now in the world of Instagram, I think is like, it's hard. It's tough, man. And I don't, I don't enjoy the prospect for my kids. Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish. And that is your go-to dinner party dish. I, I'm like a super, I like, I like cooking Ponzi food sometimes, but I'm really informal. I love like the biggest part of the essence of everything that I enjoy about which is the reason why I built the brand is like participation, like connection and like having really informal big banquets is like my gig, right? I love, I love simple food, like thoughtfully made really beautifully produced and so i love sharing and so there's this especially in the uk in the summer when we're when we're when we're able to sit in the garden get a big table out invite all of our friends around i really go into like a sort of spanish inspired like tapas night I, we i've got a stack of these amazing old vintage cast iron dishes and so i'll make 
you know, we'll make like wood roasted artichokes, but like the, the most amazing thing that you can do, which I love doing is doing a lot of prep. So I'll make like veal meatballs. We do like amazing tomato roasted salads and, you know, really like Mediterranean vibe, like incredible food, like chorizo just cooked in oil with garlic, like whole garlic cloves roasted. And then I, you know, I sort of do all the prep work and then you just roast and finish. You do like wood roasted prawns in the oven, wood roasted artichokes, and you can get all of these cast iron dishes. If you've got a big enough oven, you can get them all in in one go. They cook beautifully. They brown up. They get like piping hot. And then you just chuck all of these like cast iron dishes down on the table, loads of bread, flatbreads, all that stuff. And it's just like this amazing way. I mean, my wife always has a go at me. When we go out to restaurants, I'll order like five starters, two mains, and she wonders why I have to like work hard in the gym to keep on top of it. <laughs> but I love that. Like, I love trying different foods and I, you know, sitting down and eating one meal for me and like not sharing is like a crime. And so I love participating in sharing and just producing sort of 10 to 15 dishes doesn't really matter what they are but everybody diving in getting their hands stuck in that's like my idea of a perfect yeah party. me too that's an amazing way to host on desert island dishes we've got a cookbook corner so i'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook Yes, really interesting. So I obviously like every single person that's going to come into this podcast, they get so much inspiration derived from so many different areas of the culinary world. When I thought about this, it's definitely like not the one that's been the most staple part of my life, but it's the one that I have to lean on the most as an actual book. There's this incredible book. I went through a stage of of cooking Indian food and like mastering Indian food. I can't remember when it was, maybe before pizzas when I was in my dinner party find out who i am need to socialize trying to make it work phase and my brother-in-law jeff and i we became obsessed with cooking curries and there's this there's this one like absolutely insane book that changed my life that like is so funny because it costs three pounds you would never even pick it up in a bookshop if you saw it it's like this really sort of old paperback tiny i think it's even smaller than a5 it's like this diddy diddy book called the curry secret and it is by a author i've written it down here called chris dylan yeah like i said it's three pounds and it basically teaches you the secret of making like incredible curries and so it teaches you how like the best sort of curry restaurants can like mass produce curry and so what it does is you get this you you make this batch of base sauce out of like onions garlic ginger tomato paste turmeric and then that makes every single curry that you can make so it's like a base sauce that you segment and then you can chuck like different herbs and spices in to make tikka masalas and the curries are like insane anybody that loves curry or that has been intimidated by making curry because they can get it better down the curry house the curry secret by chris dylan is like something uh, literally because we just moved to the u.s i've just we are having this curry night that we're doing with some friends that we've met out there so for my curry night i've literally just bought 12 copies of the curry secret so it's like grab a poppadom and a book and like that's, that's so your cool. that's your goodie bag although i'd be nervous coming to your curry night based on what you said about your dad's taste buds no it's good like it's balanced <laughs> okay. I, we, we have the hot stuff but we also cook amazing ones okay, you have lots of yogurt on <laughs> yeah loads of yogurt <laughs> tom i can't believe it but we're on to the seventh and final desert island dish what is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? So my last dish is a Spanish dish. It's something that I absolutely love. It's like a staple that I cook in the summer, which is like a huge seafood paella. And something that my wife and I, Laura, have like 
a little relationship with my, my parents owned a place in, in Mallorca in Port Andrax. And we would always go to this one paella restaurant that did this just most insane huge, you know how they do them on huge dishes. And it was like our go-to thing when we got to Spain, we would like dump our stuff, go out for a restaurant. And for me, like filling it with like crab, lobsters, mussels, clams. It's such an indulgent, opulent, lovely, like sea, it's just like the sea on a plate with like loads of rice. And so like that for me, it trumps pizza. It's, it's, yeah, it trumps pizza for me. I eat pizza a lot though, but like it trumps, it's like that, if that one meal, there's so much diversity, love seafood, it's gotta be that. Are you gonna finish it with a pudding? Do you know what? I'm not a pudding guy. I just eat like four helpings of paella. That sounds sensible, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tom, those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. (laughs) So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you have enjoyed listening and felt like leaving a review, that would really make my day. (laughs) But no pressure because I know what it's like. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. This episode of Desert Island Dishes is sponsored by Gosney. Gosney was founded with one simple mission to combine wood-fired engineering and beautiful design to create products that will change the way we cook, connect and live forever. This simple mission has resulted in the creation of the best outdoor ovens you can find. In fact, their ovens are favoured by some of the biggest names in cooking, are used in several of the world's leading restaurant kitchens, and can be found in gardens, backyards and patios across the globe. I have the Gosney Rockbox oven and honestly haven't stopped cooking with it since it arrived. You might be forgiven for thinking that outdoor cooking is just for summer, but if so, you're missing out. There is nothing more delicious, in my opinion, than bundling up in cosy coats and scarves, cooking your own pizza in the garden, and tucking into the best pizza with friends. You can cook a pizza in 60 seconds, which is pretty amazing, and means that you can all have fun making your own pizzas and you aren't lingering around for ages waiting for your turn. I absolutely love ours. One of the first things I made was a Nutella pizza ring, which is just so good. If you haven't tried it, you must. And basically, pizza is going to be on the menu for the foreseeable future. So here's an idea. This Christmas, forget the obligatory round of Monopoly. Entice the teenagers back from their bedrooms and welcome a new family tradition. The Gosney Rockbox Oven can provide the perfect activity to bring the whole family together. It's really easy to use. It really is. It's family friendly. It's portable. And quite honestly, it would make the best Christmas present. You can buy the Gosney Rockbox from Amazon and also from their website, www.gosney.com, where you'll find lots more information. The Rockbox is $399 for the gas-only option or $499 for the dual fuel. Happy Christmas shopping and thank you very much to Gosney.